0: I would recommend, or get your phone and get ready to jot down some notes. We are going to cover a, well, we're in Nehemiah and we're right at chapter uh, 9, verse 5. But chapter 9, verse 5, through the end of chapter 9 and through chapter 10, cover one specific idea. And it's such an amazing idea. Idea, and it's such an amazing passage of scripture that it would do uh, do it injustice if we just were to jump in to nine verses five and start talking about whatever the context is and things like that. I believe it would fly over our heads. So, with that said, what we're going to do today is we are going to give an overview of Nehemiah five through the end of Nehemiah. um, I'm sorry. Nehemiah 9, 5, through the end of Nehemiah 9, and Nehemiah 10. And we are going to springboard into that overview with a verse from Deuteronomy. And you will see how this connects to these passages. And so next week we will continue and really dig in verse by verse through 9 and 10. But today I think it's extremely important that we get this concept Uh, that we are going to talk about, which I will reveal at the proper time. So Deuteronomy 7, 9 to 11, let's read that. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Verse 11, therefore, you shall keep the commandments and the statues and the judgments, which I am commanding you today to do them. And so that's our springboard passage. So today we're going to start out with the concept of truth. Handling truth. Now we're probably familiar with those words. You can't handle the truth. They've been made famous by the 1992 film, A Few Good Men. The movie actually was based on a real life situation that took place in 1986 in uh, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which several Marines were court-martialed for hazing a fellow Marine. Among the films, many stars were uh, Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. They stood out for their famous award-winning courtroom scene where Cruise, who plays the role of Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, a Navy lawyer charged with defending these two court-martialed Marines, accused of not just hazing a soldier, but murdering him. His name was Santiago. Cruz's character is commissioned to investigate this crime of murder, which was an unofficial disciplinary method called a code red. So when someone called a code red, it was meant to go and just give this guy an unofficial beating. So in short, the Marines who were ordered to do this, on the orders of Colonel Nathan Jessup, played by Nicholson, but the hazing turned into something much worse, which ended up killing this guy, Santiago. So in the famed courtroom scene, Cruz is cross-examining Nicholson, and he demands an answer to the simple question. He was the higher-ranking officer. Did you order the code red? He then follows it up with, I want the truth. Actually screaming it. There's a big, intense battle going on here. Nicholson then snaps back even louder with his notorious answer. You can't handle the truth. Then he went on to obliterate Cruz with some of the most forceful and brilliant dialogue ever in cinema. He sarcastically explains like only a seasoned military grunt could how the oath that he took, the covenant that he took to protect our country sometimes requires actions that may not seem moral to the average person. And because of this oath he took to protect America from its enemies, he's justified to go as far as he needs to ensure the freedom of the country, even if it means committing murder. As he put it, Santiago was a screw-up, And the code red needed to be done for the greater good of the nation. Finally, the dialogue becomes even more intense, culminating in Cruz asking and demanding again, did you order the code red? And Nicholson snaps back proudly, dang right I did. People often take oaths with good intentions, but oftentimes they fail because of a distorted view of the truth. The character admitted truthfully what he did, but he justified it based on his standard of truth of the oath that he took. And that was completely misconstrued. So one form of oath that we should never take lightly are those that are made before the Lord. In Nehemiah 9, 5 through chapter 10, Israel takes an oath to obey the covenant of Moses, which they had violated. Most of them didn't even know it because they were born in captivity. They hear this covenant being read out and they go and make an oath to obey the covenant of Moses, something they've never could ever do in the past. They've always failed, but they thought in Nehemiah that they can do it. So the problem wasn't their intentions. The problem was is they misconstrued this simple truth. Mankind is incapable of following God's commands and laws on his own. Our sin nature is the reason. God's law actually magnifies and stirs up the sin within us if you don't believe me, try focusing on all the do's and don'ts of Scripture. You'll be miserable. You'll be burdened. You'll be like carrying around a yoke that you could, were never intended to carry. Because sin is magnified by do's and don'ts. Remember that, by the law. Romans seven eleven 11 in verse 13 as well. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment Deceived me. It made me think that I can do this. Why? Because of my sinful flesh. And through the commandment, it killed me, Paul says. And then verse 13, through the commandment, sin becomes utterly sinful. And so we have to focus on handling this difficult scriptural truth. Your heart, my heart is utterly sinful, and if it weren't for the grace of God, we could do nothing at all to please him according to his holiness. And that turns our skin inside out in our sin nature, in our human flesh. Only by being born from above, born anew, made a new creature, does that become a joyful reality. So when we focus on Jesus... We focus on His Word. We focus on the power of the Holy Spirit. We find that His commands are no longer burdensome. They bring joy. But again, it's focusing on Christ, on His Word, and on the Holy Spirit, our helper, our comforter, guiding us into all truth. That is the way it happens. There can't be a mixture. We can't live in a works based relationship with God. I do something bad, God's going to do something bad. I do something good, God's going to do something good. Get rid of that mentality. God does something good in you despite you because his grace is sufficient enough. All right, so in our passage today, we see Israel making the same silly mistake. When I say passage, I'm I'm not referring to the springboard. I'm talking about Nehemiah 9.5 through the end in chapter 10. They're making the same mistake. They're trying to work their way to God, banking on an oath they took, remember that emphasis, they took to obey all aspects of the old covenant. Again, their intentions were good. But they refused to handle the truth about the nature of their incapable heart. They refused to see that. And they tried to pick themselves up with great intentions by their own bootstraps. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look a little bit at this concept of an oath, a covenant, or in other words, a treaty, which we will flesh out. And then we will also see what God requires of us, what he requires of our heart as kingdom people living under the new covenant of his blood, which is a better covenant. So basically our premise today is that God's commands can only be accomplished with our full dependence on his grace. That's the only way it's going to happen. And making unrealistic covenants and promises to God puts the focus not on God, but on you and your own strength and ability. So how did Israel make this unrealistic promise to God in these chapters of Nehemiah? Well, number one, they took an oath to renew not just any covenant or treaty, but the one that is laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the book of Deuteronomy means second law. It's a treaty of sorts that was given by God. And God always told the Israelites, you can only do this if you circumcise your heart. If you have a new heart, you'll be able to follow this commandment. And they never were able to do that. Surprise, surprise. You and I would never be able to do that. Well, how do we know this is a type of treaty covenant? Well, Deuteronomy's structure from the beginning to the very first word of the book to the end is exactly that of what we refer to as ancient Near East treaties of the kings that were in the same area that Israel was in. I know that sounds scary. Ancient Near East treaties thought you were going to tell me about other stuff, God's love and all this stuff. No, I want you to get this. And at the end, I'll tell you why it's so important that we do. So these treaties were always done by the king, the king of a certain nation. We see Aramaic treaties of kings. We have evidence of that. We see the ancient Hittite treaties, ancient Egyptian treaties, and they're all from a king who thought he was a god. All those kings thought they were, they were god, and they were um, you know a god that is going to live forever, and even when they die, they're still going to live, and they really were full of themselves. But they would make these treaties with their vassal king. What that means, think of vessel, their vassal king is a subordinate king. So if, if uh, let's say, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, during the exile... He was a king and he made a treaty with all with the main ruler under him to follow the laws that he would put out. So he, this vassal is a leader on behalf of the higher leader. You get that. And we see this in the scriptures. Moses, David, Solomon, these are all vassal kings subordinately under the ultimate king Jesus Christ. And again, <clears throat> why is it important to consider these Near East Treaties? Because not only Deuteronomy, the second law, but all of the Old Testament covenants and the New Testament covenant models this same structure of these ancient Near East Treaties. Now, it's also important because this shows the relationship that God has as king to his leaders. Now, when I say second law, it says the first law was given in Exodus 20 when they left, when they went to Mount Sinai and left Egypt. And then it was reiterated again to the people who wandered out through the wilderness, all the people died for their disobedience. And then the new people rose up. It was repeated again to them in Deuteronomy because they were about to go into the promised land. And then when they went into the promised land, it was then ratified and renewed by Joshua. None of these people wrote new covenants like the people of Nehemiah did. Although Nehemiah modeled Deuteronomy, this was they initiated it instead of going back to Deuteronomy and looking at all the times in that book that God tells them, circumcise your heart, change your heart, and I will give you a new heart. But they didn't think about that first. They jumped ahead out of guilt, maybe out of checking a box that, yeah, we got to do this right so we get blessed. We're, we're in the promised land. And that was not correct. Now, this treaty also, this treaty structure that is used throughout Scripture also tells us and shows us how God works in true history, historic reality. God is a a present God. And that's why we can learn so much by investigating the history behind the history, the history behind what these people are teaching in the Old Testament and the New. Biblical theology is another way to put it. I would say that if you're interested in learning more about the Bible, learn biblical theology. Gerhard Voss has a great book on it. It's required reading in every seminary. It's only a little tiny book, but it's very, very weighty. What is biblical theology? Well, it's looking at the scriptures in light of the writer's historic theological understanding. What was the theological understanding at the time of Nehemiah? Remember, they are just looking what they have and what they know of the past. They're not knowing the New Testament. They're not knowing all the prophetic books after them. So that would be biblical theology. They're looking within their historical, geographical setting for the context and the theology that that person had when writing or receiving these words <clears throat> Now God expresses his attributes through this treaty structure as well Because the law or the deuteronomic treaty is based on God's holy standards God is proving to be the greatest king of all because his his statutes and commandments are righteous holy and just. You couldn't say that about any other king or his vassals outside of Israel. Everybody was shut up and turned over to their sin until the time would come that Christ would die and rise from the dead. And then the Holy Spirit comes and enables us to be mini temples, mini Israel going out to the world, expanding the gospel and preparing it For God, as he is going to embody and be present in the new creation, there's going to be no temple. There's going to be no thing there. There's going to be no sun. There's going to be no moon. Why? Because Christ is going to be vividly present to us. We will gaze into his face, the scripture says. Now, these attributes in scripture are expressed by having his leaders use this covenant style treaty, but it infused with truth, justice, and righteousness. And so this treaty structure that God gave was then emulated and copied by these other countries, or vice versa, doesn't matter if somebody else had it was like, oh God, you know, is copying off. No, God is in sovereign over everything. Now see again the only difference is That God is the true author, yes, but that again, the Lord is the highest ranking king of all. So what does this have to do again with our chapters in Nehemiah? The people of Israel were trying to reinstitute this Deuteronomic treaty, because that's what they had just heard, remember? In chapter eight, Ezra opened up the law, he gave them the sense of what it meant, the people were like convicted, and, and, you know, and then Ezra, um, uh, then the leaders came back and they wanted to know more. We want to know more of that, what the law says. And so the Levites and Ezra taught them more. And then they said, well, we got to start celebrating the, these festivals, the Feast of Boots, which they celebrated on the right day. But then we see that the what we believe to be the Day of Atonement, which is in the mandate also in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Likely in Deuteronomy, Deut- uh, Leviticus, we, we believe that they read through Deuteronomy and not Leviticus yet. Because again, it's hard to study a whole book verse by verse. <clears throat> but they were, they were convicted by this, and then they said, you know what? We're going we're to write out an, a, a whole entire treaty for ourselves, and we are going to commit to God to do everything. We're going to sign an oath, we're going to seal it in blood. And they had hundreds of people sign it. You see, the law was often repeated and modernized for for the people. Like, again, you don't see uh, intermarrying laws in Exodus. Why not? When they gave the Ten Commandments and they fleshed out all the rules, you don't see don't intermarry. What we see is, you know, don't marry your sister. Right, Because the nation of Israel was contained in the wilderness. But then when they get into the promised land, the law is reiterated again, and these additional non-marrying you know, laws. And the reason God didn't want people to intermarry with other nations was because these other nations were detestable in the eyes of God because of their practices. And so they didn't want Israel to, cut, to, to take this and start to do it. That's why things like um, having a, um, I messed this up the other day so bad and Pat called me out on it and now she teases me about it all the time. But a mother of a, uh, what do the, what they call The mother of a lamb or a goat or whatever, you're not supposed to boil that, that the, the baby in the mother's milk. You say, well, why is that arbitrary? But yet that was one of the practices of the Canaanites to do that. So God said, don't be doing that. Don't get any ideas. He wanted them to stay completely away from being contaminated, not themselves as much as the seed of Christ that was to come through Israel. That line had to stay pure. And so we see the 10 commandments, we see the Deuteronomy, and then in Joshua, if you want to take, if you're taking notes, chapter 24, when they added, when they went into the promised land, they were, it was reiterated again. And so the Mosaic and other covenants weren't needed after Christ's death. So they weren't reiterated in total in, in the new covenant. But the actual new covenant, which we're going to talk about, is also a treaty form as well. But it doesn't need all the regulations and laws because they were fulfilled in Christ. So the context, again, is Israelites knew they failed when they heard and read and studied the law. And what they were doing in Nehemiah 9 and 10, he said all that to say this, was mimicking and reinstating themselves to God by taking this oath in the form of a covenant treaty that's modeled after Deuteronomy. Because they were convicted when they heard the law. Sometimes we get convicted by God and we instead of turning in the right direction, we turn, but in the wrong direction. And that's what they did here. God doesn't want you to go from being an alcoholic to being a heroin addict. At least you're not drinking anymore. No, God wants you to take everything to him and surrender to his grace that you can't do it on your own And then he will give you what you need to make the right and correct decisions based on his leading. And you may be saying, well, they, okay, Pat, they, they modeled Deuteronomy, but what's the problem with that? Well, here's the problem. The difference is, is it's God's treaty given to Moses and the people. And this is how it's supposed to be. God gives us the covenant and the power to obey it by faith. After he has circumcised, he, our heart. Was it any different in the Old Testament? No. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, 15 to 16. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. But in Nehemiah 9.5, in chapter 10, it's to chapter 10 is much different. It's the Levites on behalf of the people, not Moses or Ezra or anyone else on the behalf of God, making and ratifying a covenant with God on their own, in their own strength, laying out stuff. They didn't get it by looking at their fathers and messed up. They said, oh, our fathers were terrible to you, Lord. Instead of saying, oh, Lord, our fathers didn't have faith. They didn't circumcise their heart. They didn't trust in your grace to be able to follow your law. That's got to be the top button buttoned on your shirt, or else they all are off track, right? If you button the top to the second. You have to start with a circumcised heart from God, a new heart from God. And then you realize his grace. And then you rest in that. And then you say, yes, Lord, I can't do it, Lord. But when I'm weak, I'm strong. I'm surrendered to you, Lord. I'm giving you and laying down my life as a living sacrifice to you. I'm not going to say, Lord, from now on, I'm going to go to church. And I'm not even going to, I'm going to go to Sunday school. And if you really want to stretch, Lord, I'm going to actually show up at 11, not 11.10. I'm going to be there. That's a joke. I'm going to go not only to all that, but I'm going to do the men's Bible study, the women's Bible study. I'm going to check in. I'm going to start a ministry on my own. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do, 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 do. And then what happens? All those do's and don'ts become magnified because that's what the law does. <clears throat> they missed the point. It wasn't a verbal written contract that God wanted. God doesn't want your promises as a matter of fact don't Jesus even says don't make an oath you're not going to be able to handle it is what he meant because that's what the Jewish people would do I'm going to make an oath I'm going to shave my head I'm going to go to the temple I'm going to and we see that in even modern uh, versions of Christianity and offshoots of Christianity people even today crawl up the Vatican on their hands and knees they whip themselves, they flagellate themselves, they even nail themselves on a cross, and God is just shaking his head. Good intentions, but mishandling the truth. God wants us to love him, to trust him according to his word of truth. In other words, he wants us to come to him with the right heart, which would then move them to obey Naturally. And I don't mean that you become perfectly obedient. No. But those mess ups, they just become like, you know, Lord, I'm sorry, but praise you that you forgive me, that you've washed me clean. I've confessed my sins and you're faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, Lord. Praise God, I'm letting this go and I'm moving forward. I'm getting back up. That's what he wants us to do. In Deuteronomy 30, Four to six, he says the same thing almost again. If you're outcast, now this again is talking directly about the people of Nehemiah's day. Listen, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. That's what he did with Nehemiah, right? He pulled everything, gathered everybody, rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls, reinstituted the law, all this stuff. Here's this what he's doing, and he's saying, "From there, I will bring you back." Verse. 5 of uh, chapter 30, the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. This is talking about Nehemiah. It's also a type of the future promised land, the new heavens and new earth. You'll see that as you listen to the rest of this. You will possess that land and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Again, fulfilling that Adamic, command of multiply, be fruitful, it's actually happening. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, that's us, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so you may live. It's all about God and his glory. Amen? Amen. All right. So Deuteronomy models this ancient Near East covenant treaty and Nehemiah the two chapters we're covering there models the Deuteronomy covenant almost exactly. But this covenant treaty design models God's character and faithfulness, which is then revealed in the new covenant. So we're going you've got Nehemiah 9 and 10. They're modeling Deuteronomy. And then the covenant treaty design in and of itself is modeled throughout all of Scripture. And, it's, and it's, it's, it comes to a, a, a culmination. It grows exponentially and it explodes before our eyes in our new covenant in Christ's blood. So how does this apply to us today? This whole idea of this covenant, of this works-based covenant, the structure and all those things. Well, first, and I want you to really think about this. Avoid making unrealistic promises to God that put the focus on your own strength and ability. Avoid making unrealistic promises to God. Like I just talked about, but they were sort of, you know, I was being a little facetious there. But you have to think about it in your own. Every one of you has a different thing that you you are because your sinful flesh will always be, it always reverts to this. And it will, it's, if it reverts a lot now, know that it's going to revert less and less, but there's always going to be a danger until we go and meet Christ of this reverting to our strength, our ability, because that's what we're made of. But when, when we're made a new creature, it goes, and then we have to depend upon the, the, the Holy Spirit. They made these unrealistic promises. You say, well, Pat, they made the promises, but uh, where does that in Nehemiah? where Where is it in Nehemiah that they failed? Well, it's not. Well, I shouldn't say that. Towards the end of the book, when Nehemiah returns, he's like, you're taking on foreign wives again? Didn't you see what happened to Solomon when he went after these foreign wives? They caused him to sin. And Nehemiah, in the most gracious way he could, smacked them around and pulled the hair out of their beards. And that's what we need sometimes, right? We're not going to do that to you here. At least not until you become official member. So shave your facial hair. Read Malachi, as I like to call it. Malachi, for those of you that don't have a sense of humor. If you go there, now again, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to read the whole thing, the whole chapter. But I do, remarkably, I have five minutes. So I'm going to soak it up here. And I just want you to go to Malachi. And Malachi was, the prophet Malachi was during the time of Nehemiah. But it was about 10 years after. And it's a it's an indictment against Israel for for failing to fulfill God's law with their hearts. He says, I'm just going to randomly read some verses. Uh, Verse six. Where is my honor, says the Lord? If I'm your father, where is my honor? You I have priests that defile my name. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. You present the blind for a sacrifice. They weren't allowed to give any blemished animal, but they would have all these healthy animals and they would go, oh, that one's blind, let's sacrifice that. Instead of giving their best to God. They uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord. I will be great among the nations, but you are profaning my name. It's only four chapters long. You've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. Why do you deal treacherously with each other, profaning the covenant? Judah is an abomination. Why are you divorcing your wives? What they used to do is, is they would, once they were getting older as men, and once their wives got older, they would divorce them and then marry younger ones. And God hates divorce. You forgot the wife of your youth. And he all goes on to telling them they're robbing him of tithes. They're robbing them of sacrifice and so forth and so on. So we go through Malachi and see. You see, we often fail to internalize the alarming and importance and seriousness of covenants especially the new covenant treaty in christ now what is this new covenant well we see it in the old testament in jeremiah 31 this is the covenant which i will make with the house of israel after those days and and again you are part of the house of israel read romans chapter 9 10 and 11 you will see that and many others ephesians 2 and many others. He says, in those days, I will put my law within your heart and I will write it there and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel, okay, this is before Nehemiah. Ezekiel was a prophet during the exile. Well, actually before, during, and after a little bit. He says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in your statues. That's the covenant. Our response to that is not obeying specific to-do lists. Jesus says that the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. You no longer have to obey the covenant of Moses. You no longer have to think back so the Passover lamb, which was only a picture of Christ, instead of doing that and remembering that and meditating on that for your sins, nope, I want you to meditate on my spilled blood and my broken body. That's our the covenant with Christ. That's why we do the Lord's Supper. To remember that covenant. It's a proclamation of the gospel until Christ comes publicly. So we look at the Lamb. <clears throat> Albert Martin says in his book Pastoral Theology the old covenant says stay away only the sanctified holy priest who needs to come in with a sacrifice to him for himself stay away from the daily sacrifices all the sacrifices were down, done in the outer court and then brought into the holy of holies stay away but the new covenant tells us just the opposite come near Enter into the throne of grace. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. a am meek and humble. It's a yoke of joy and of easiness. It's like contradictory, right? A yoke that's easy, Jesus has given us. And our covenant badge isn't the Torah, but rather our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we can go and say that every tongue, nation, tribe, and language can come into the, 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 that throne room. Everyone can come in because we share not in a heredity of, gene, of genealogy. We share not in, even in the same language. But what do we share? What's our common bond? Faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to do. Paul says in Galatians 3.11, no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. It's evident that the just shall live by faith. This was the same in the Old Testament. But their sinful heart and their inability prevented them from understanding it. They were puffed up. Habakkuk says in 2.4, behold the proud, his soul is not upright with me, but the just shall live by faith. And in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. This is to Zerubbabel, who built the, rebuilt the temple about 100 years before Nehemiah was there. Zerubbabel was like, how are we going to do this? Hey, you're not. I am. How am I going to do this, Lord? How am I going to find a job? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to do this? You're not. It's not by might nor power. It's by my spirit. Be patient. And so the Torah was the primary way to identify and mark out the people of God. But they still had to believe in God. They had to have faith in his grace for their justification and power to obey. They were never justified by obeying the whole law because nobody could do it. That's why they had to sacrifice every single day and spill blood. Again, think about the do's and don'ts. They become burdensome. It's like we're, we're going through the Lord over the Rings in you know, 15 minutes a day. And I love that whole series. The, I made it through the first three Hobbits. And now I'm going in uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. And I'm halfway through the next. But I, I love the, all the biblical parallels in that whole thing. Tolkien was obviously a Christian, as you know. If you, and if you don't, now you know. But it's like the Ring of Power. Remember who got the ring of power? Smeagol. But who did he turn into? Gollum. And that's like the law. The do's and don'ts. It will wear you down. It will grind you down. Because the law and focusing on it only magnifies and makes sin grow stronger. So focus on Christ, on the gift of God, Him, His grace, His mercy. Okay, so next week, what we're going to do is we're going to begin to flesh out 9.5 through chapter 10, highlighting the covenantal historical content and correlating it and how we have to live under the new covenant. So I pray that you will read ahead because I gave you this t- foundation today and that should be able to get, keep you along. But if you read ahead, if you read through Deuteronomy, you don't have to read it every verse, but skim through it. And then read through everything, you know, verse by verse through 9 and 10 of Nehemiah. And you will see that it is amazing of the parallels of both of these books. 9 and 10 of Nehemiah is like a mini Deuteronomy. The only difference is, is they were doing it on their own strength. And God gave the law in Deuteronomy and before. So here's the challenge. Here are some hints as you're looking through. And those of you that are real Christians will write these down. (laughs) Number one, you will see, this is the covenantal structure, the preamble. That's in the very beginning. Who's writing it and on whose behalf are they writing? Number two, you will see witnesses. Who are the legal witnesses of these treaties? you can see the parallels in both. If you don't do Deuteronomy, at least look for this in Nehemiah 9 and 10 stipulations of undivided allegiance. Now, don't think that I thought about all this stuff up by myself. This is a, a, a difficult theological topic, but a man named Meredith Klein in the book Treaty of the King, the, great, the Treaty of the Great King, lays this out and is the textbook for covenantal treaties. So that's where I'm getting most of this from. However, he does not talk about Nehemiah. He didn't need to because it was Israel's Covenant, not hit, not gods, but it's just in the covenant, like the covenant structure. So undivided allegiance. Uh, uh, don't give allegiance to other gods, other people groups, other practices that are forgiven. Here's a hint. Nehemiah 10 consists of all this entirely. The whole book is all their do's and don'ts, all the promises to God. As does Deuteronomy chapter 5 to chapter 26, 49. Some light reading. The historical review or prologue of Israel's history of God's love and grace. You'll see that. You'll see blessings and curses associated with disobeying and obeying the treaty and the arrangement for preservation, which is Nehemiah 9.38. Now I'm over, but that's okay. You guys are good. You're, never, you're not going anywhere because we have food waiting for you. So I want to I just show you this here. Nehemiah 9.38. Now, because of all this, this is after they gave the whole, what they're going to do. We are making an agreement in writing and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, the Levites and our priests who sealed the document of the first law with his finger twice. God, Moses brought up these stone tablets and he wrote it. Then Moses came down. People were disobeying the covenant already. Moses threw them down. That was a symbol that was. That could be traced around as well too. When uh, uh, somebody broke the the treaty of the covenant or his vassal, they would take the the actual covenant and destroy it. So it wasn't necessarily Moses, oh man, you're not doing it. This was a symbolic thing to do of a vassal leader. And then he went back up and got the new ones. So arrangement for preservation in Deuteronomy is thirty-one one to 34.12. Now, here's the question that's pretty much on mostly everybody's mind. Is this all really necessary, Pat? I mean, couldn't you just talk about the new covenant? Can't you just have a sermon about grace and faith? I mean, we would have got the same point. Well, here's what I want you to imagine. Think of a deflated party balloon with words of celebration written on it. When the balloon is just out of the bag and deflated you can't really notice much detail. You can't read the words. You can't get all the characteristics of the balloon. However, when you blow that balloon up to capacity, you see every little detail and its words and its message now become alive to you. Now, when you dig deep into scripture, its message and theology, they expand like a balloon blown to its full capacity. Seeing all these important details that the Holy Spirit intends us to see. That's why we dig. We look at the difficult books. We look at the comparisons, the types, the historical context, the grammar, and more. This is where the Holy Spirit works and where God gets the most glory. Let's pray. Praise you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your amazing wisdom. Thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, I pray that we would see the direct correlation of all this to what you've done in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you through the way, the truth, and the life, that they would come to you, they'd do business with you, Lord. They would confess their sins. They would trust in you to deliver them because knowing that there is no other way you are the only hope, Father, but we know you have to open hearts, So I ask that you do that. I ask you do that to all of us here. Wherever we are in our walk with you, Lord, it's because you intended it that way. So let us rejoice as we become sanctified unto the truth and as we become more in love with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.